Hi, Sandra. Hello, Neil, and hello to our friends who are listening to us from all over the world, literally over 65 countries now. So exciting. We're growing so fast. I mean, some of us are growing so fast. Don't you eat like a pint of coffee ice cream every single day? No, you didn't. Uh, you ate a whole box of glazed donuts. The nerve. Yes, maybe I did. And I called you out on your ice cream addiction because there's no other funny intro for today as we usually do. Uh, in light of everything we're going to talk about, I think we should all just be appreciative of the lives we have and the food in our fridges. That's true, yes. Today we are going to talk about the Holodomor, which is the Ukrainian word for death by starvation. And as any term in a foreign language, Holodomor can't be properly translated to carry the meaning it actually contains. This word is more than just death by starvation. It also means this pain, this horrific hunger, which is why Holodomor is also known as the Terror Famine or the Great Famine. So the Holodomor happened between 1932 and 1933. Stalin tried to eliminate an entire class of people by starvation and repressive policies like farm collectivization as well. This was a genocide, basically, a manufactured famine. Yes, and it is important, especially in the context of Putin's insane invasion of Ukraine, to understand why the Ukrainian people have been fighting so heroically, why they are willing to die for their country. There is not one single Ukrainian family who doesn't have a grand-grand-grandfather, a grand-grand-grandmother, or a member, or a friend, or a friend's relative who did not starve to death at the hands of the Russians during the Holodomor. This tragedy is ingrained in their hearts, and the Ukrainians have every right to describe what Putin is doing now in 2022 as genocide again. You know, genocide has different components. Besides the actual killing of many people, it also refers to a fragmentation of a nation's populace through resettlement, like the filtration camps Russia has been taking Ukrainians to, and also the resettlement for the over 4 million war refugees right now that are displaced scattered in so many countries all over Europe and elsewhere right now. And as far as dehumanizing the victims and lying about the horrors committed, Putin is using the same playbook as Stalin. He really is. It's very similar. And in Ukraine, millions died. It's not known exactly how many. But on the low end, say three to five million people just in Ukraine. Some say up to seven to ten million people starved to death. Other countries were quiet as people were starving to death. This is why we said hidden genocide in the title, because even though other states can't be held accountable for the famine, they were guilty for keeping quiet and doing nothing about it to try to preserve their relationship with the new Soviet Union. In fact, some even tried to bury the truth while people were starving to death in Ukraine. And for context, Holodomor is also named by some authors the Hidden Holocaust, just because not as many people know about this. Yes, these starvation policies were not only implemented in Ukraine, but Ukraine was the epicenter of the most repressive measures by Stalin's farm administration, and thus had the largest numbers of deaths. And connecting the Holodomor to today... Why is Putin doing what he's doing to begin with? And the answer is because of Ukraine's resources. It's the grain. Because Ukraine is still called the breadbasket of Europe for a reason. And the crop fields of Ukraine are, so far, relatively unscathed by this war. 
But the key is when they want to sell these crops, now they need access to ports. So Kherson, mostly under Russian control, is a grain port. Odessa, Mariupol, grain ports. They almost got two of three. You take these three over and you basically have control of all of Ukraine's crops. And that has massive implications on food supply and their economy, not just in Ukraine, but everywhere in Europe. Yes, and again, in 2022, we see how Ukraine's crops are being targeted by the Russians. Without Ukraine, Russia can't be an empire like Putin dreams. You know, with Ukraine, it can. It's the land, the crops that give Russia that global influence like they used to have in the good old days. And it's about controlling the farmland and the big crops output. It was about the land and the grain then. And to a very big extent, you know, if you look at it in context, it is about the land and the grain now again. And back to Holodomor, as with most things, the way this came to be is not a simple chain of events. There are lots of causes and effects, so we really should start with a brief history surrounding the Soviet Revolution of 1917. Yeah, after the fall of the Russian Empire in 1917, Ukraine briefly gained freedom. But just a few years later, in 1922, it was integrated by force in the newly created Soviet Union. Yes, and at the time, as most countries in the region, Ukraine was predominantly rural. Most people were farmers, but not in the sense Western countries might think of farmers now. They were villagers working the land with old school tools, with horses and bulls, no modern machinery or modern technology. And these people were self-reliant. They lived off their land. They fed their children and livestock off their land. This was a very pastoral country and Ukraine had and still has extremely fertile soil. The land is so rich and full of nutrients that crops really grow without many issues, which is why it's always been known as the breadbasket of, well, the USSR and of Europe, really. And they produced massive amounts of wheat and grain. And by the way, everyone knows that the Ukrainian flag is blue and yellow. Well, the blue represents the sky. Some people say it might be the Black Sea, but really nobody is confused about what the yellow represents, the crops, the wheat. So even the symbolism of their flag is related to their land, to their crops and how fertile and rich the land is. Yeah, and it makes total sense that Stalin wanted complete control over the country. At the time when Stalin rose to power in the mid-1920s, Ukraine's culture was thriving, its national identity and values were thriving. This was not the Soviet culture, it was Ukrainian culture. But obviously this was not something that Stalin and other Soviet leaders liked, uh, not at all. There are reports that he discussed the Ukrainian cultural and national identity situation with other Soviet leaders like Kaganovich, Kalininin, and Molotov. And the consensus was that having a national identity and being part of the Soviet Union just will not work. So Stalin wanted a malleable Soviet Ukraine, not a Ukraine that has its own culture and traditions. So this whole Ukrainian identity thing scared this whole Ukrainian identity thing scared Stalin and he feared it might cause a Ukrainian revolution. In 1918, just a few years before Ukraine becoming part of the Soviet Union, a peasant revolt against the Bolsheviks began in the Penza region, about 400 miles south of Moscow. The conflict was over the taking of grain by the Bolsheviks to feed the cities and the Red Army. And Lenin's order to the party bosses in Penza was swift and very harsh. This is a quote. 
Send this to comrades Karayev, Bosch, Minkin, and other Penza communists. And the text of the message is this. Comrades, the revolt by the five Kulak regions must be suppressed without mercy. The interest of the entire revolution demands this because we now have before us our final decisive battle with the Kulaks. We need to set an example. You need to hang, hang without fail, and do it so that the public sees at least 100 notorious Kulaks, the rich and the bloodsuckers. Publish their names. Take away all their grain. Execute the hostages in accordance with yesterday's telegram. This needs to be accomplished in such a way that people for hundreds of miles around will see, tremble, and know, and scream out, let's choke and strangle those blood-sucking kulaks. Telegraph us acknowledging receipt and execution of this, signed Lenin. P.S. Use your toughest people for this. I got goosebumps, like not the good kind, the bad kind. And I don't know, but that sounds like probably something Putin would say, like I can hear it in a way. And about the kulaks, the kulaks were a class of people who arose during the last year of the Tsar rule, who were formerly farm peasants themselves, but had risen to a sort of a middle class by purchasing some farm machinery or farmland itself with credit offered by the government. But simply put, the kulaks were the peasants who were working the lands, even if they were maybe a little better off than the regular peasants, but by no means they were very rich people, you know, like the oligarchs or something. No. This was one of the land reforms implemented by the last Tsar to try and discourage or at least postpone peasant revolts. So to summarize pre-famine situation as far as Soviet leaders and revolutions go, between 1917 and the early 1930s, the Bolsheviks won the Russian Civil War and reassorted control over the territories they had ceded to the Germans during World War I, including Ukraine, in 1922. But during that time, Lenin's health began to decline. He had a series of strokes, and then he dies in 1923. Prior to his death, Trotsky and Stalin were the likely successors. Uh, Lenin tried to appoint Trotsky to be his successor before his death, but Stalin, as Putin does, had already put loyal people in charge of local party offices throughout all of the Russian territories thus building a political consensus while Trotsky mm -hmm. really only had the Red Army behind him as he commanded the army. So Stalin became the leader of the Soviet Empire for the next several decades, and Trotsky's head became the resting place of an ice pick from one of Stalin's <laughs> assassins, in short. Yes, and with Stalin comfortably in power, the entire ideology of the Soviet Revolution changed. And this conflict between the farming villages and the revolution leaders in the cities was somewhat prophetic. Uh, the revolt against Lenin's grain requisitions in 1918 is essentially the same situation that arose again in Ukraine with Stalin in power in the 1930s. 
Yes, they are basically the same, but in Ukraine's case, Stalin decided it's best to try and prevent a revolution by adding a few elements to the mix. So he decided to kill Ukraine's national identity, their culture, their tradition, and even demolish their churches. By the way, uh, the communists did the same thing in Romania, tried to destroy national identity and replace it with Russian identity. Never works. It creates the opposite effect. People will revolt, if not immediately, soon enough. Yeah, Sandra has a lot of stories from her native Romania uh, when it was a Soviet satellite state. Quite a few of these stories are in our premium episodes. Yes, you're making me seem old. The people should know that I was not even seven when the Romanian Revolution happened, but I do remember that day as if it was yesterday, and I remember life before. Mm, not good things, not at all. Anyway, since you mentioned our premium episodes, guys, if you enjoy our content and want to get the premium episodes while supporting Dubious, because by the way, we are a completely independent podcast. We have no editing team, no sound people, no budget, no media company backing us up. And you know, we work on the episodes you hear on nights and weekends. So if you want to support us, you can become a patron by clicking on the link in the episode notes or by going to dubiouspod.com. And there's a become a patron button there. And the best part is that the sign-up process is super easy. going to take you 10 seconds. We don't need your life history. Just fill out the form, <laughs> click the button, and you get all of our premium episodes. Yes, and the process is easy because we don't use Patreon. And not only are you going to get our premium episodes, you're also going to get all the other episodes ad-free. So back to Stalin and Ukraine. In the early 1930s, Stalin decided that it's best to squash this Ukrainian identity out of fear that it could fuel a revolution. Stalin cracked down on what he saw was an ideological threat to the Soviet regime. And what better way to destroy a country's spirit and values than embarking on a violent purge of the intellectuals? You know, poets, artists, writers, journalists, priests and students, all these people were not desirable for Stalin. It's like decapitating a country, you cut off those people who are more likely to think freely, to revolt against oppressive regimes, and they have done the exact same thing in Romania too. They sent all these people, the intellectuals, to the what was called the Canal. That was the Danube Black Sea Channel that was being built at the time. And they sent all the intellectuals in gulag-type camps to work there forcibly. And it was an extermination tactic, exactly like they did in Ukraine right before the Holodomor. Yes, and this is how Raphael Lemkin, the Polish lawyer who studied in Ukraine and then coined the term genocide, describes his purging preceding the Holodomor. The first blow is aimed at the intelligentsia, the national brain, so as to paralyze the rest of the body. In 1920, 1926, and again in 1930 to 1933, teachers, writers, artists, thinkers, political leaders were liquidated, imprisoned, or deported. According to the Ukrainian Quarterly of Autumn 1948, 51,713 intellectuals were sent to Siberia in 1931 alone. At least 114 major poets, writers, and artists, the most prominent cultural leaders of the nation, have met the same fate. It is conservatively estimated that at least 75% of the Ukrainian intellectuals and professional men in western Ukraine, Carpatho-Ukraine, and Bukovina have been brutally exterminated by the Russians. 
Yes, Carpatha, Ukraine is not to be confounded with the actual Carpathian Mountains and Transylvania. Those are in Romania, and so is Bukovina. But yes, Stalin did the same thing there. And truthfully, throughout the modern history in Romania and Ukraine, it's been intellectuals who were closely monitored under USSR influence. And if any signs of opposing the regime were identified, these people would be brandished as enemies of the state and sent to forced labor camps or just disappeared, basically. Yes, and around the same time in 1928, Stalin introduced his five-year plan throughout the entirety of the Soviet countries, Ukraine included, of course. The goal was to get full control of the country's agriculture and then industrialize all of the Soviet Union at a very rapid pace, uh, building up industries like uh, coal, steel, manufacturing, not just the agricultural part. Let me tell you, dictators have an obsession with coal and steel. Ceausescu had the same fixed ideas and the same five and ten year plans. And Stalin, in order to be able to fund this plan of his and to industrialize the whole of the USSR, came up with a solution, the collectivization of agriculture. In Ukraine, all countries part of the USSR back then, everywhere. That was his plan. The collectivization of agriculture meant consolidating individual separate farms across the Soviet Union into bigger state-run farms. So if you combine 70 or 80 smaller farms into one really big farm, it's easier for the local party bosses to control everything from labor hours to production. It gives the state easier access to the final product as well. So the logistics was simpler this way. Exactly. And in Ukraine, the collectivization gave Stalin direct control over grain production. So he could take all the crops, all the grain and sell it to the West as a way to fund Soviet industrialization. And to do it fast, too, because five years is not really a long time when you look at what the goal was, you know, insane, industrializing the entire USSR. The whole collectivization, industrialization plan had an ideological side to it as well. They wanted to ingrain in people's minds that it's not the land that matters. It's not the land that feeds you. Can you imagine trying to convince a farmer that, no, it's not the land that puts bread on the table. Like, it's it's the boss back in Moscow. Yeah, it's insane. And, you know, all these hardworking peasants who farmed their little pieces of land on their own and had been self-sufficient were now told that the land is no longer theirs and they must change their entire perception and believe that it's the state who takes care of them. Insanity is just crazy. And Stalin's first five-year plan to modernize the Soviet state involved moving labor from the farming villages to work in the factories that they were building in the cities. The plan was that new farming machinery would increase farm production despite having less labor present in the villages. But predictably, there were people who were not so excited about the new plan. And why would they be? These people had also fought the Tsar. And during multiple failed revolutions in the past, the one thing they had gained from the nobility in the form of concessions was land reform, which had already given them the opportunity to make a profit as farmers, however small. So then along comes Stalin with a decree that the Soviets intend to seize all the farmland and make it property of the state again. So if you put yourself in the average Ukrainian farmer's mm -hmm. shoes, 
who has no interest in the ideology of the revolution, they're taking a step backwards. They have just lost what they fought the czar for, the new boss. Yes, and a lot of peasants opposed the collectivization. So Stalin found a way to attack them, to dehumanize them, because that's how genocides usually start. And he literally launched a propaganda campaign to smear the farmers, and he labeled anyone resisting collectivization a kulak. And the kulaks were portrayed as fat, greedy, evil-spirited people again, exploiters who didn't want the betterment of the society. And they were deemed enemies of the state, of course. And there are illustrations from that time depicting the kulaks as literal parasites, lice. As we know, dehumanizing a group of people is among the first stages of genocide, so... Yeah, the propaganda attacking the kulaks was a way of driving a wedge into the rural communities as well. The kulaks were a bit better off than other peasants, but it's not like these people lived in palaces. It sets the scene for trying to exterminate them, though all of the people opposing the collectivization, because it's easier to do if everybody sees them as less than human. Yes, and of course, Stalin seized all the property of the kulaks or their belongings, and then he exiled, imprisoned, or simply executed hundreds of thousands of them. And for those who remained and managed to survive this first purge, so to speak, Stalin engineered the famine to starve them to death. And just for context, before we get to the actual famine part, this is what was happening with the whole collectivization and industrialization craze during Stalin's first five-year plan. So they seized horses, mules, and other working animals from the peasants in places like Ukraine, but the party did not have facilities to keep the animals in. So a large percentage of these animals simply died due to lack of shelter in the winter and poor keeping by the farm administrators. The idea was that the working animals would be replaced by tractors, but they screwed the tractors up too. Yes, they brought in Western engineers to teach them how to build tractors and factories to produce tractors, but they used substandard oil and gasoline to run them, so the tractors broke down all the time. They didn't buy spare parts or have a plan to produce spare parts, so when a tractor broke down, another new tractor would be scavenged for parts to fix the old one. Yeah, and by 1931, Stalin had deliberately set quotas for grain production that were way beyond the capacity that the farmers could produce. So when people failed to meet these unrealistic quotas, Stalin's party bosses would sweep the farms and confiscate all the grain they could find. The Soviets took over 4 million tons of grain from Ukraine in 1932 alone. That was the same year that a new law was implemented as well. Anyone who took even a handful of grain or was caught hiding bread or grain was punished with 10 years in prison or death. So this oppressive collection policy Stalin implemented created this famine that started spreading in grain-producing regions all across the Soviet Union, but especially in Ukraine, as Ukraine was the breadbasket, and that's where most of the grain grew. And despite the fact that some party members from different regions sent Stalin letters and desperate pleas for a change in the policy, Stalin refused to hear any plan to ease the policies. As a matter of fact, he doubled down. Yes, and that's what makes it such a radical 
response and ultimately genocide because Stalin knew at this point what he was doing. He knew that if these grain policies go on, many people would inevitably die. He just did not care about that. And in Ukraine's case, he also hated the Kulaks. So Stalin could have easily reversed these policies at this point easily. And after a short while, people indeed started suffering from hunger all over the Soviet Union. But when it came to Ukraine in particular, Stalin wanted complete submission in the fall and winter of 1932. So at the time of the year when everything's frozen, Soviet police began seizing anything edible, not just the grain, including the livestock. I hate this. I hate, of course, what Stalin did to all these innocent people, but also the way farm animals are still seen. I mean, back then I get the concept of livestock, you know, animals seen as just property, but now I don't condone this view anymore. These are like little calves and mama cows and dada bulls and sheep and goats and baby sheep and baby lambs. And I just want people to eat Beyond Meat and stop the massacre of the animals. And no, we are not getting any money from Beyond Meat. But, you know, these these little babies, they cry when, when they are taken away and their mamas cry too. And there are so many videos of cows even crying in fear before slaughter. You can see tears rolling down their faces and like, we're the worst species. Oh, anyway, go on. I mean... <laughs> You're going to make people cry with the mama cows and the baby lambs. And this episode is, this is difficult enough. Do you want all the people to just quit and leave? No, they won't leave because I think our people here feel the same. Now, tell them about Stalin's blacklist and stop picking on me. You know, I'll take every chance I get to defend the innocent animals. Okay. So certain farms and entire villages in Ukraine started getting blacklisted for missing grain quotas. Shortfalls in grain quotas were met with more seizures of the grain that they did produce, up to and including the grain that would be needed to plant the following crop. So homes were torn apart for hidden food, and these villages were prohibited from receiving any supplies whatsoever. And in January 1933, realizing Ukrainian farmers and villagers were trying to leave in search of food, Stalin closed the borders entirely with an internal passport system. Yes. Moreover, he didn't only close Ukraine's borders. He policed migration from the villages to the cities. He basically kept peasants by force in their small villages where there was nothing left, no grain, no animals, nothing. He prevented them from finding food or even going forests to try to catch something or find mushrooms or Whatever, whatever. But no, he prevented them from even doing that. Yeah. In the following months, attempts by starving peasants to flee the villages was countered by this internal passport system, which prevented people from even leaving their homes. Still, tens of thousands of Ukrainian villagers were caught trying to flee. Some were shot. Some were sent back to starve in their homes because an abundance of starving farm villagers fleeing to the cities that didn't have room for them would have caused an urban revolt, the same sort of urban revolt that caused the Soviet Revolution back in 1917. So they resigned themselves to sit and guard over villages while the villagers slowly starved to death. Can you imagine what sort of hate is required to sit in comfort and watch as people slowly starve to death? Especially when the people are mostly women, children, and the elderly, since the work-capable men have already been sent off to Siberia to work in mines or lumber mills. Well, they're <sighs> not Russians. They're Ukrainians, or they're Kazakhs. 
and they're not socialists, they're kulaks. So the definition of a kulak was all over the map by this point. It went from peasant landowner who hires laborers to anyone who owns a farm machine to anyone with a few head of livestock and ultimately to anyone who disagrees with farm collectivization. Yes, and at this point, I think it's fair to say this was a targeted extermination. You know, people began to eat anything they could find, and oh my God, I can't even think of this, but yes, some in desperation, and I am, like, I'm not condemning or anything, but like in desperation, and as a last resort, some people ate their pets, you know, I don't want to talk, but birds, mice, rats, anything they could catch, I mean, tree bark, grass, anything to survive in some cases, including the deceased. Yes, there were some cases of cannibalism. And again, there is no judgment there because what do you do? Like if your child is starving, to, I don't know. But some people who lived by the rivers, maybe they might have had a bit more luck because they maybe caught some fish, but most people were not living by the rivers. Let me put it that way. And as for the farmers who tried to hide grain, even though they knew they risked death if they were found. A woman named Lydia, who was a child during the Holodomor, told her son how her mother, Lydia's mom, managed to save her family. She dug a hole in the yard during the night. Before the worst of the government crackdown started, she hid a big barrel full of grain there, and she would make bread at night so that the soldiers couldn't see the smoke coming out of the chimney of the house. And that's how most of them survived, but not all. The elderly still did not make it. Yes, and Lydia, as a young child, and at her mother's advice, also helped her neighbors. She sneaked bread for them, and that's how seven out of nine people in that family living across the street survived. And this is how the Ukrainians stuck with each other and did whatever they could to help others in their villages, too, with the little resources they had. Yeah, but millions were not so fortunate. And just like Stalin's five-year industrialization plan and the collectivization plan, the tractors and the policies, all the facets of Russian society and infrastructure, uh, the Russian railway system was also notoriously bad. So food taken from the villages was pretty commonly lost due to being transported late or not at all. So the food would just sit around and spoil while people are starving. And it was the failures of the Russian rail system that brings us to our hero in this story, a Welsh journalist named Gareth Jones. And he made several trips to the Soviet Union to document the advancement, or lack thereof, of the new Soviet Union under Stalin's five-year plan. And during his trip in 1931 with American businessman Jack Hines, Jones would walk out to villages while waiting on the trains that were always late and talk to the local villagers. Yes, and thankfully for us, he kept a diary of his travels, which has been published for all of us to read. For instance, there's an account of his conversation with a local farm collective party boss outside of Kharkiv, and during their conversation, a villager ran up and interrupted them. And this is a quote from the villager. Tell him the truth, he shouted. Why are you telling him lies? We are being oppressed. Nothing but taxes, taxes all the time. How can we live? The truth, 
the truth. Another local villager in the same town told him, quote, they sent the kulaks away from here and it was terrible. We heard in a letter that 90 children died on the way. 90 children from this district. We are all afraid of being sent away as kulaks for political reasons. We had a letter from one saying they were cutting wood in Siberia. Life was hard and there was not enough to eat. It was forced labor. They sent all the grain away from our village and left only 1,000 pounds. I heard that in a village 30 versts away, they came to seize the grain and the peasants killed three militiamen. They wanted to have enough grain for themselves instead of starving. The communists then shot 16 peasants. And for our Western audience, a verst is like a Russian kilometer. It's a measure of distance. So what Gareth Jones and Jack Hines stumbled across was the perfect storm of ignorance and prejudice that in the end turned out to be a genocide. Exactly. It's not surprising. And as bad as Lenin was, Stalin was not Lenin. Lenin wanted to put down the peasant revolt in Penza and make an example of a hundred of them. At the same time, he did allow peasants to earn a profit from their farms because he saw the necessity in keeping the farmers content, if not happy. Stalin, in contrast, simply decided to purge them all of them, from their farms forever. Here's a quote from a speech Stalin gave in 1929 about the policy of, quote, dekulakization, <laughs> which sounds a lot like Vietnamization or Putin's denazification. Quote, now we are able to carry on a determined offensive against the kulaks, break their resistance, eliminate them as a class, and replace their output by the output of the collective farms and state farms. Now, dekulakization is being carried out by the masses of poor and middle peasants themselves, who are putting complete collectivization into practice. Now, dekulakization in the areas of complete collectivization is no longer just an administrative measure. Now, it is an integral part of the formation and development of the collective farms. Consequently, it is now ridiculous and foolish to discourse at length on dekulakization. When the head is cut off, one does not mourn for the hair. Mm. And it should be noted that Stalin had basically zero expertise in how to manage farmland. He was raised in a city, the child of a housekeeper and a cobbler, and was educated in a seminary. So Stalin's already convinced that any failure of his farm management policies will be the fault of people he wants purged from his empire. One other thing that's evident with a little reading between the lines of Gareth Jones's diaries is who the people he spoke with were. He mentions several times encountering women working the fields and old men complaining about being hungry. The only mention of young men was in scenes he described of kulaks waiting to be transported to the gulags or some other form of forced labor or exile. So in short, Stalin thought that women could work the farms with the help of the new farm machinery that the Soviets didn't know how to build, didn't know how to operate efficiently, and didn't know how to maintain. And meanwhile, all of the men would be sent off to labor in the factories or in Siberia, basically. Yes, and any failure of this plan would be considered a nefarious plot by the Kulaks mm. against Stalin and the party to be punished. And punish he did. Yes, and those people who weren't starved to death were targets in the Great Purge from 1936 to 1938. 
Poles and Ukrainian kulaks were the most disproportionately represented groups in Stalin's late 1930s purges, then he moved on to those in the Red Army who might have had lingering loyalty to Trotsky, another million to 1.2 million people died during Stalin's purges. Wives were sent to five to ten years of gulag labor after their husbands were executed, their children sent to orphanages. All of the family's possessions were confiscated so that any other dependent family member would be destitute and also would probably die due to a poverty-related factor. And all of this because it was inconceivable to the child of a shoemaker and a housekeeper, educated in a seminary, that his farm policies might be wrong. Mm. Ceausescu was a shoemaker too, by the way, just like Stalin's dad. <laughs> I had no idea that that was the case before we started writing for this episode. Is there some conspiracy of shoemakers among dictators? No, 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 but that's a thing. <laughs> that's a thing. I think it's it has to do with this, like, the working class, like our leader should be representative. And obviously, like, shoemaking at the I mean, everybody needed shoes. Do you know what I mean? I guess that might sure. be a... <laughs> I wonder what Putin's real father did. The Russian soldier that Vera Putina created Putin with. Wouldn't be surprised if he was a shoemaker too. I don't know. Good question. But back to our ship. You know, we explained this expression in many previous episodes, so we'll skip this time. After its peak in May and June 1933, the famine started subsiding slowly. Because of the weakened labor force, the Soviet regime finally, finally took some measures to decrease grain confiscations and arrests. I remember one of the things I read for this episode was there was a, an article actually published by Stalin in one of the... Uh, newspapers, I believe it was Pravda, and he described the easing of retribution against the Ukrainian peasants as the farm collectives were dizzy with success so that they needed to slow oh. down so that they did not outpace oh. the five-year plan. So when they realized that if they starve everyone to death, there's not going to be any more people to work. That's when he finally relented with his Dizzy with Success article in Pravda. That is insane, turning truth on its head. And like, it's, that's the thing with this information. It's the same playbook. But yes, and by 1934, most regions were collectivized. And at this point, almost all the farmers were working for the state. And look, we'll never know the exact numbers of those who died of starvation. But as we said in the beginning of the episode... At the very least, 3-4 million, at the very least, just in Ukraine. And places like the North Caucasus, where there was a largely predominant Ukrainian population, had very high numbers of deaths too. Further east, Kazakhstan lost 1.5 million people, so at least a third of its population. In Ukraine, though, so many people died during the Holodomor that Russia had to send Russians over to rebuild the labor force. So the resettlement program brought many Russians into the south and east of Ukraine. And to this day, this is why those regions have a larger you know, ethnic Russian population than the rest of Ukraine does. What was the West doing at this time, you're asking? Why were they so quiet about the famine? Well, largely because they didn't know about it. Russia made sure of that. Stalin carried out a massive disinformation campaign to cover up the famine he caused. In fact, at some point, he outright denied 
a famine ever existed, the Russian press were not allowed to report on the famine, just like the Russian press is not allowed to report on the war in Ukraine right now, and Stalin banned foreign correspondents from going to Ukraine. But Gareth Jones, as we saw, found a way to get there. Yes, at the same time, Stalin allowed language that would downplay the Holodomor. It wasn't genocide. It wasn't starvation. Mm -hmm. It was, quote, food shortages or food supply problems. Or a military operation instead of Or a military (laughs) operation, yes. It's just a military operation. Don't worry about it. So, Walter Durante... A reporter from the New York Times established himself as the Russian analyst of merit in the Western world at this time, and his task was to report exactly what Russian diplomats, who he befriended, told him to report, including denying the Holodomor in the pages of the New York Times and supporting Stalin's show trials and mass purges in the late 1930s. And what's even more infuriating is this guy actually won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on Stalin's successes with the five-year plan. (sighs) Yes, this is from an article in the New Statesman entitled Fellow Travelers and Useful Idiots about Durante and others like him. Quote, Walter Durante, the British-born Moscow correspondent of the New York Times, used his columns to ridicule the notion that there was a famine anywhere in the Soviet Union while confiding to officials at the British Embassy that about 10 million may have died of starvation. Described as being curiously contemptuous of ordinary Russians, Durante was provided by the Soviet state with a spacious apartment, a large car, sumptuous meals, and the services of attractive women, former persons from the old regime who had been coerced into working for the secret police. For Durante, fellow traveling was a ticket to a kind of life he could not have enjoyed in a Western country. Yes, so Durante called the famine that killed millions of people a food (sighs) shortage, just like Stalin liked to hear. When lies needed to be told, the bribes paid to Western journalists were... Very capitalist in nature, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, they were. But guess who didn't take a bribe and reported the truth? And even challenged Walter Durante, Gareth Jones, the Welsh journalist we talked about. He snuck into Ukraine and wrote about how, quote, famine ruled Russia at the time. And Russia was a term used by many journalists to describe the Soviet Union as a whole, including Ukraine. But still, you know, Gareth Jones, I really think he's the hero in this story. Absolutely. No doubt about it. He is surely the hero of this story. As for villains, it's not just Stalin. It's people like Walter Durante, too. A lot of foreign intelligence people who Mm -hmm. knew what was happening. You know, the Western world's leaders eventually knew. They might not have known in the beginning, but by 1933 and 1934, they surely knew. Yes, and Gareth Jones challenged Walter Durante and wrote several articles, very eloquent ones. The situation couldn't have been more clearly expressed. Quote, there is no bread. We are dying. Tell them we are dying. That was the title of one of his articles. And that's what people in Ukraine asked him to write, and he did. In response, Durante, who worked for the New York Times and thus had far more influence, put out articles insisting that people are, quote, hungry but not starving. 
Yes, and Gareth Jones is not the only hero. There are several photographers who manage to take photos of starving and dead people in Ukraine, and some, like James Abbey, an American, were caught by Stalin's people and shortly detained. But still, many of these images found their way to leaders in the West, and yet Western leaders were quiet. As you said, they wanted nothing to do with this, so they looked the other way. And we link some of Abbey's photos for which he got kicked out of Ukraine. Yeah, and the man who captured the most striking images of people starving on the streets, of Kiev and Kharkov in particular, uh, was an Austrian chemical engineer who worked as a contractor for the Soviets. His name was Alexander Wienerberger. He also had a photo in the same album of a literal replica of a Roman slash Greek palace in Ukraine that was converted Mm. into the Soviet health minister's summer house we gotta i don't even know if this palace still stands but we'll have to get a social media post with his picture of this palace in it it is astonishing to me that somebody who claims to be a socialist revolutionary looking Mm. out for the working people can sit in a literal roman palace above people who starve to death on the streets i i completely agree and again i i hate drawing this parallel but who else is sitting in a palace, Neil? Yes. Like a, <laughs> when we More talked than about one. It. That's just floating palaces, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but it, it's what happens. And this is, you know, 1984. This is the hypocrisy, right? They pretend to be working class people. You know, like Putin said, quote unquote, slaving for the Russian people. And in fact, they live this lavish life. They have nothing to do with the regular hardworking people. That's the truth. Yes. And I mean, we had a Great Depression in the 1930s in the U.S. as well, which also had droughts, also had crop shortages. And so in the U.S., at least, there was some focus on our own humanitarian Mm -hmm. crises domestically. But for many years, the U.S. government did not really accuse Stalin and the Soviets of this particular genocide. Exactly. More than a dozen countries have recognized Holodomor as a genocide. Finally, in March 2018, in a Senate resolution, the United States also recognized the Holodomor as a genocide. So it only took us 86 years. (laughs) As far as individual states in the U.S. go, well, not doing so well. (laughs) My own native Texas needed a few more years, surprisingly (laughs) enough. So, yes, things are a little slower in Texas. So they only recognized the whole of Demor as a genocide in May of 2021. Yes, I mean, most civilized countries moved a bit faster than the U.S. and definitely much faster than Texas. Yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah, and after the famine, Stalin not only manipulated the press and offered perks to journalists like Durante, who pretty much lived in Vegas, it sounded like, (laughs) he destroyed the archives and went to great lengths to cover up traces of this genocide in the paperwork, too. Yes, he made sure that the certificates of the Holodomor victims didn't use the word starvation as a cause of death. Thus, millions of Ukrainians are shown in official records to have perished in 1932 and 1933 from freezing pneumonia and heart attacks. I mean, we eat well in Texas, and we also ate well in New Orleans, but I don't think there were ever millions of heart attacks, even where we uh, are (laughs) such fans of our very buttery food. So 
There was even an issue of the 1937 census whose findings showed a massive drop in the population of Ukraine. So Stalin decided that he can't have these numbers go public because it's impossible to have, you know, just be short four to five million people uh, from freezing and heart attacks in two years. So these numbers are even estimates. Not everyone even got a death certificate. And not everyone had a birth certificate either to begin with. So the numbers are possibly even higher than what we're talking about here. Yes, so the people who put the census together, many of them were arrested and some of them were executed. And over the next 40, 50 years, the Soviet Union continued to hide and lie about the Holodomor. In fact, families who lost loved ones were afraid to even mention in public later on, you know, among friends or colleagues that the Holodomor even existed. They were afraid of being arrested. So it wasn't enough that they killed their family members. They practically muzzled people who survived and their children, well, either be quiet or you'll disappear in the middle of the night, just like your parents did. Yes, yes, but the people, you know, quietly passed down the truth to their kids and their grandkids and so on, and Ukrainians never forgot, never. And that's why now they fight the way they do. That's why the Azovstal heroes, those military men and women caught under that steel plant in Mariupol, lasted so long, even though they were severely injured with amputated limbs in completely non-hygienic conditions, with almost no food and barely any water. That's why. That's why we saw people trying to stop tanks with their bodies. That's why we saw professors putting the pen down and picking up guns. And Russia hasn't acknowledged any responsibility for this genocide, not even today. Uh, blaming Ukrainians for exaggerating and misrepresenting facts, just like they do in 2022, when Russia said that the war crimes in Bucha, Borodyanka, and Mariupol and other Ukrainian cities were, quote, staged by the Ukrainians mm -hmm. themselves. The crisis actors are here. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's insane. It's the same playbook of horrors, the same disinformation tactics. But thanks to the good journalists and not the state-controlled Russian media, we know the truth. Now, just like then, thank the universe for press and journalists. And, you know, one or two might be a bad apple, like Walter Duranty was back then, and like Fox News and Newsmax and Russia Today are now. But these people who snuck into Ukraine during the famine and told the world what was happening, these are, you know, real journalists. And now in 2022, we have social media as well. And there are videos documenting the Russians' war crimes in Ukraine. Unfortunately, Gareth Jones was not as lucky. After revealing the Holodomor to the world... Jones was deported and banned from re-entering the Soviet Union. You know who else was banned? By Putin? Hmm. Luke Harding, he's a very good journalist, a reputed journalist, and he wrote a book, Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win, and Putin banned him forever. He can never go back to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so, a lot of similarities, you know, between Stalin and Putin. I guess maybe New York Times journalists are too expensive these days. It's easier to just get mad and kick people out. But Gareth Jones, in 1935, since he could not go back to the Soviet Union, went to Mongolia instead. And he was going to report on the Japanese invasion of China. And he was paired up with a German named Herbert Muller, who got a car for them to use on their travels in Mongolia. 
and there they were kidnapped, supposedly by Japanese bandits for ransom. But there's a problem with that story. So prior to their trip, Muller had been living in the Soviet embassy in the city now known as Wuhan, but then it was called Hankow. And the car he got for their trip was registered to a company called Vostvag, which we now know was a trading front for our friends at the NKVD, a.k.a. the KGB. Of course it Isn't was. Isn't it funny how <laughs> these things happen? So Mueller, magically, was released with very little difficulty and not paying any ransom after two days. But Gareth Jones unfortunately, was shot and killed by their captors. Yes, and this is a very similar story to that of the two journalists investigating the Vera Putina case, the woman claiming to be Putin's biological mother. One of these two journalists was also shot dead while investigating not only Putin's nationality and birth story, but also his war crimes in Chechnya. And the other journalist died in a suspicious plane crash. We talked about this in a previous episode uh, called Putin's Childhood. Yes, and guess who else is from Georgia? I don't know. Who are you thinking of? Joseph Stalin. Oh, yes. Also from Georgia. <laughs> Just like Putin, even though he doesn't want to admit it. Yes, and I think we didn't we talk about that in the childhood episode? As well? I don't know. We've done so much Putin because it's impossible. You can't not... Uh. It's You could go on forever, really. Uh, I mean, we talked about... All sorts of dissidents, journalists, activists, and even close friends and mentors that Putin had murdered mm-hmm. in our premium episodes about his rise to power and about his private life. Uh, that's a good episode, yeah, too. Yeah, the, that's one the, of my favorites, the, actually. I mean, the, the purity test that he subjected his wife to before <laughs> they got married was absolutely insane. Yes. So do we have any other books uh, besides the one you mentioned a minute ago? Yes. Yes, I do. And by the way, we have no deals with any publishers and no incentive whatsoever for recommending books. We only recommend what we truly like. And the second book I'm going to urge everybody to read is our hero's book, his published diary. It's called Tell Them We Are Starving, the 1933 Diaries of Gareth Jones. And of course, a Luke's Harding Collusion. Yeah, these are my two books for this episode. And let's also remind everybody before we go that we've got two premium episodes every month available to our patrons. And you can get them by clicking the link in the episode notes or by going to dubiouspod.com and clicking on the Become a Patron button. You'll not only get those two episodes, you'll get all of our regular episodes ad-free as well. Yes, and also if you like us, a five-star rating and hopefully a good review would really be helpful. But most of all, recommend us to your friends. Oh, and I almost forgot, if you guys are social media butterflies, we are at DubiousPod on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And we have cool episode graphics there and also soundbites from our premium episodes if you want to check those out. That's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yes, thank you, fam, and see you next time.